You're listening to episode 60 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. Well, today I've got another monologue for you. I've been doing this sort of series on the podcast, taking a look at literary features in scripture and what they teach us about writing, preaching, and handling narrative. Today, I want to take a look at Mark's ending of his gospel. It is the month of Easter, and so I've been spending a lot of time reflecting on the resurrection stories. And Mark is particularly interesting in how he handles wrapping up his gospel. I hope this one's as interesting for you as it has been for me in writing it. As always, thanks for listening. Well, it's been a crazy couple of weeks for me personally. My family is in the process of moving, not far, just to a different house. But we've been busy packing boxes and cleaning and changing our mailing address everywhere, signing papers. And if you listen to the last episode of the podcast, you know that I've also been battling a cold. Well, unfortunately, that cold developed into pneumonia the Saturday before Easter Sunday. I had a U-Haul truck reserved and everything for Monday morning. It was all the worst possible timing. That meant that I had to call in a favor and ask one of my congregants if he could preach Easter Sunday, giving him about a 12-hour notice. Nobody wants to contract pneumonia from their pastor on Resurrection Sunday, so unfortunately, as difficult as it was, I chose to stay home. It also meant that my congregation got my Easter sermon the following Sunday. And with so much time to reflect on the resurrection this year, I thought I'd take an episode to look at one of the most familiar yet controversial Easter stories, the Gospel of Mark. Two years ago, I preached through Mark, and I did it in a kind of rapid pace, fitting it in between Christmas and Easter. Reading chapter 16, I was fascinated with the question and the issues surrounding how Mark chooses to end his gospel. If you're familiar with the gospel of Mark or have paid close attention to your Bible's footnotes, you know that there's a major question about how Mark actually intended to end his gospel. The Gospel of Mark ends with chapter 16, and most Bibles include this strange note between verses 8 and 9. The ESV puts it, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. That's the ending that's in most Bibles for the Gospel of Mark. What follows in those verses, verses 9 through 20, is an account of Jesus appearing to various followers and his disciples and then offering the Great Commission to them. That little note, though, means that as archaeologists have discovered older manuscripts, we also discovered that they didn't include this latter part of chapter 16. Most scholars agree that the oldest manuscripts end the Gospel of Mark in verse 8. So, here's how the Gospel ends in those older manuscripts. Mark chapter 16, verse 4 through 8, that older ending. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's it. That's the end of the book, at least the last bit that we have from the oldest versions of Mark. Scholars have some pretty good theories about why the book ends so abruptly. By the way, Mark has a similarly abrupt opening in chapter 1. 
And this has led to a theory that at some point the beginning and most obviously the end of the scroll containing the text was lost. Some scholars have offered a pretty good explanation for how it could have occurred. It would have been the beginning and the end of the scrolls that were attached to wooden rods. And as those rods deteriorated over time, they may have taken with them the end paper of the scroll. That left later scribes with obvious holes in the story, which they smoothed out, perhaps based on the other Gospels that they had. Um, This is a theory, but it does help make sense out of why Mark might end so abruptly in verse 8, this strange line that they left trembling and astonished and not telling anyone because they were afraid. With some degree of variations, that's the basic consensus of many academic scholars. We're simply missing the ending that Mark intended to give us. And that might be right. This is hardly a theological point after all. We have enough of Mark's ending to understand very clearly that he thought Jesus to be bodily resurrected. But I think there's a case to be made that Mark may have intentionally ended with the cliffhanger of verse 8. I think it could very well be a Markan literary move and one that's worth taking the time to appreciate and learn from. Mark, after all, has a distinct literary style. He's abrupt and fast-paced in the way that he narrates his gospel. If you've read through Mark, you've noticed that he's fond of using the Greek word euthus. It's translated immediately in several translations or straight away. You might even translate it simply, and then. Mark uses the word more than 40 times in just his 16 chapters. Even in its simpler and then form, it still has a kind of literary punch that keeps the action moving in the story. Mark's pacing is entirely different than the other Gospels, say John's. We also believe that Mark is the earliest of the Gospels. That means he's the first, or at least the first we know of, to write Jesus' story down. Though he may have been working from some source material, or at least the Jesus traditions, eyewitness testimony and teaching, Mark breaks new ground in deciding what of Jesus' life should be included in his gospel. And that's no small feat. Interestingly, it's probably Mark's abrupt style, his fast pace, and his decision not to include things like Jesus' birth narrative or Jesus' genealogies that led later Christians to move the gospel second behind the much fuller Matthew account. Many in the early church thought Matthew came first, partly because Mark's style seemed to be a kind of summary, they thought. Um, I'm obviously abbreviating lots and lots of various arguments, but you get the idea about Mark's style. You can understand why some readers might have questioned Mark's gospel ending with, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. How can a gospel of good news end with fear? What are you to make of an ending like that? And is there something here we can appreciate, something Mark might have intended? Again, Mark has patterns that are worth noting in the way that he writes. Not the kind of hidden Bible codes, but the kind of thing that all writers inevitably do. He has themes and words, threads that work their way through his gospel. And this idea of fear is actually one of them. It's a word we might better translate awe or reverence. It's the same reaction, for instance, Mark records when the disciples see Jesus calm the storm at sea in chapter 4, or when the woman with the issue of blood comes and falls at Jesus' feet in Mark chapter 5, or in chapter 6 when the disciples see Jesus walking on water, chapter 9 at Jesus' transfiguration, and chapter 10 when they hear Jesus talking about his coming death. This is the way Mark almost always indicates the awe of his disciples and his followers when important moments in the story take place. It's a kind of mysterious, overwhelming sense of something not fully grasped, 
something which they don't control but is nonetheless unfolding in front of them, and they're not quite sure what to do with it. Fear. So it's striking that Mark might possibly conclude with this same sense of awe, which has characterized so many of the major moments in his book. And there's another interesting parallel going on here in the end. The final scene of Mark's resurrection morning is dominated by the presence of an angelic messenger seated in the empty tomb. A herald, he announces to the women, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you shall see him, just as he told you. The angel offers a kind of prophetic announcement. Jesus is risen, and he calls his disciples to now follow him to Galilee. It's interesting that Mark might end with this kind of prophetic announcement because he opens his gospel with a prophetic announcement from Isaiah. Mark 1, verse 2 and 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1 reveals that messenger to be John the Baptist. And in Mark chapter 16, the angelic messenger commissions the women with a similar task. John had declared Jesus the Messiah was coming. The women declare that he is now risen and they are to follow him to Galilee. Both will call the disciples to follow, and the announcements form a set of interesting bookends that actually have a striking literary effect at the beginning and the end of Mark's gospel. But can a story end that way? Sure, it could show up there, but did Mark really intend to just stop the story in verse 8? Well, what literary effect does an ending like that possibly have on the account of Jesus' resurrection? What does it do to the fact that we don't get Jesus in visible form to his disciples in Mark's account? If Mark intended to end his gospel in verse 8, then it leaves a few things hanging unanswered in the story. Will the disciples find Jesus in Galilee? What will happen now that Jesus is risen? What does it mean for the disciples to be constantly characterized by this fear? And what will those disciples do now when they receive this message from the women? If Mark does, in fact, end in verse 8, then it's hard to characterize that ending as anything other than open-ended. Those are difficult questions because they avoid letting the Jesus story wrap up in the formal conclusions, the kind of conclusions that allow the reader to walk away thinking that the story has officially ended. Stopping in verse 8, there is no finish, no conclusion to Mark's story. Open endings like I'm suggesting in Mark are common enough in literature today. There's a fairly well-known Samuel Beckett play titled Waiting for Godot that has a similar kind of open ending. The play is more nihilistic than Mark's gospel, but it ends with a similarly unanswered and obvious question. Two men wait for a third man named Godot to arrive. We're not sure who he is, why they're waiting on him, but the whole play is about them passing the time waiting. We aren't told why, only that they're waiting for him to arrive. And as they wait, they meet various other travelers who bring out dialogue and help us understand more about their waiting. Much of the play is centered around the men's discussion. How long should they wait? Why are they waiting? And as the play reaches the end, Godot is still not arrived. In fact, the play ends without any explanation and without this final appearance of this character we've been waiting on the entire play. The thing we've all been waiting for just simply doesn't happen. The effect is that the two men are left waiting in a way that almost seems trapped. 
we as the audience are freed. We walk out of the theater and go back about our business, but the tension never resolves. We walk away still feeling the tension of the two men's waiting. That is, the open ending has an effect of pulling us into the story. By failing to give us an ending, we're actually left stuck with the question. Lee Rokey, writing for The Guardian, captures perfectly the power of these open endings in literature. He writes, It's no surprise that most novels are ruined by their forced endings, by our collective desire for them to conclude in an orderly fashion so that we can get on with our lives after we've closed the book. We hold up our novels like vanity mirrors, hoping to reflect our own dreams, conceits, and liberal aspirations. Duly satisfied with our novel's conclusions, we put them back down, happy and content. A week later, all is forgotten. The previous novel has disappeared from our lives, and we've moved on to another that's hopefully a little better and more entertaining. He concludes, But not those novels without end. Steeped in ambiguity, those novels stay with us. We can't shake them off, no matter how hard we try. They haunt us, mock us. They hang around, waiting for us in the shadows. They disturb our working days, disrupt our sleep, torment us, force us to participate on their own terms. Much like real life does, novels without endings reveal to us the ambiguity that is crucial to our own desire to simply find out things for ourselves. Now, some scholars have argued that the literary convention of an open ending that I'm describing here is not something that the ancient writers were aware of. It's not something we can read back into ancient accounts like Marx. Some argue that this literary convention is a modern feature completely unknown to the ancient writers. As Wilfred Lawrence Knox puts it, to suppose that Mark originally intended to end his gospel in this way implies both that he was totally indifferent to the canons of popular storytelling and that by a pure accident, he happened to hit on a conclusion which suits the technique of a highly sophisticated type of modern literature. But other scholars see it differently. I recently read through this interesting monograph by J. Lee Magnus. It's called Sense and Absence, Structure and Suspension in the Ending of Mark's Gospel. Sounds fascinating, I know. Magnus argues that there's plenty of evidence for open endings in ancient literature, and in other parts of the Bible, in fact. Take this excerpt from his conclusion. Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, in spite of its openness and omissions, achieves satisfactory closure. This opinion is not a modern, theoretical imposition on the ancient text. It's an opinion based on careful comparison with the endings of other ancient literary types. Like the Iliad, which ends perceptibly on the high note of tensions. Like the Aeneid, which ends in a minor key and on a falling cadence. And like typical epic, which though it must have a close, does not have an end, but closes in such a way as to leave us with a vivid sense of going on. Magnus actually points out how additional endings have been added to literature like the Iliad to smooth out its ending in similar ways to later editions of Mark. And speaking of Mark, Magnus makes this final conclusion. Mark, chapter 16, verses 6 through 8, directs the reader's imagination to provide the proper closure to the narrator's story. It's the omissions, the suspensions, the seeming lack of closure, which allows the reader the freedom to perform the task. I think Magnus makes a compelling case for Mark pulling out some impressive literary technique to wrap up his gospel. Now, growing up, we often had Easter productions at our church. The most powerful moments are always the scene where Jesus comes out of the tomb. 
I actually remember a youth service where someone used a chainsaw on stage to cut a hole in foam that had been painted to look like rock. And as the chainsaw cut lines were coming into the rock, light and smoke began to pour out from inside the tomb. It was all obviously as dramatic as you could possibly conjure up on a church youth group budget. And then Jesus would suddenly appear, always sort of a silhouetted figure against the backlighting, stepping out from it into the spotlights of the stage. And that's the kind of thing we imagine Easter being, all the drama of it. But it seems to be the thing that Mark is intentionally avoiding. The tomb is already empty. Jesus is already gone. And the angel is just sort of casually sitting there inside. Mark apparently isn't interested in giving us all the dramatic details which we've all previously wondered so much about. He doesn't, for instance, even mention the earthquake that Matthew records. Far more dramatic, if you ask me. Instead, for Mark, Jesus is already on his way to Galilee. We're behind on the action. Jesus is already ahead of us, calling his disciples to follow, to catch up. We are now, too, the terrified disciples, behind and trying to comprehend everything this resurrection now means. Go read the ending for yourself, stop in verse 8, walk away, and think about where it leaves you. See how it makes you feel the effect it has. As one commentator explains about verse 8, it requires the reader to review what he has read in order to comprehend this apparent incongruity and its meaning for the narrator's message. The text ends, but the readerly work goes on. Isn't that the entire point of the Easter story? Isn't that one of the greatest achievements of any writer or any literary work? The work may finish, but the reader goes on. You can't put it down. Jesus' work goes on. Resurrection goes on. Our lives, now lived in light of it, go on. More going on than we can control or predict or really fully comprehend. There's no ending to the gospel story, and Easter can never really be ended. It's always the start of something entirely new, a new beginning. As writers, it's worth reminding ourselves that books and writing are not everything. What I mean by this is there is life to be lived after a book is put down. As a writer, often I want to say everything that can possibly be said about a topic. I want to know everything about it and be known for knowing everything about it. And writing can become the means of achieving that recognition. The more we read, the more we think, the more we have to say. We have points to make, arguments to defend, critics to answer, folders full of notes from years of accumulating loosely connected ideas, and we want to use it all. And then there's that feeling, the feeling of seeing 75,000 words printed out and stacked eight inches high on your desk. You're a writer. There's the proof of it. A person with something to say, an author with a voice. And there it is, a book. But a book isn't actually all that important. The book is not the achievement. It achieves nothing if not read, for instance. And what matters most is what a reader does and thinks when they put the book down. As writers, both nonfiction and fiction, we deal with facts or truths, but it's always with the aim of effect, the fact that moves the person into the truth. That's the thing we're after. I like how Thomas Merton put it. By reading the scriptures, I am so renewed that all nature seems renewed around me and with me. The sky seems to be a pure blue, the trees a deeper green, The whole world is charged with the glory of God, and I feel fire and music under my feet. What he's describing is not what he finds in the text, 
that the world that text enters him into, the one it opens up before him. The best writing does not give us mastery or control over a subject. It never lets us conclude things with easy and neatly folded principles. Good writing never quite finishes. It never wraps up. Instead, the best writing opens our eyes to a world bigger and fuller than our manipulative attempts at control. Those attempts never allow us to see everything that's fully there. But writing it as its best welcomes us into it. We are ushered into resurrection, into hope, into new creation. We end in a new beginning. Now, I could be totally wrong about Mark's ending. We could maybe someday dig it up and find, oh, there was actually an ending and I've totally missed the point. I could be connecting dots that have no real connection at all. But I think this invitation into the story was the thing that Mark was actually after. I think he wanted to pull people into the resurrection story with no ending. No ending could fully contain it. He wants us to go in awe, looking for the resurrected Jesus. They are ahead of us. He was sure that we would find him, just as the disciples did and just as he had. That's the kind of writing that I want to produce as well. Not that my ideas would make the world smaller, more controllable by principles and insights, but that my writing might blow apart our categories, expose how little control we actually have, and invite us into a creation that's constantly giving way to resurrection. Jesus just ahead of us in Galilee, the hope, the fulfillment of resurrection to come. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode by going to pastorwriter.com slash 60. I also would really appreciate it if you might take a moment to leave some feedback. You can do it on Facebook or you can do it wherever you listen to podcasts. For instance, in iTunes, you can click one of the star reviews or type out a comment. The feedback is one of the best ways for me to continue improving the podcast. As always, thanks for listening. Happy Easter. Until next time.